Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. The real concept of a digital business transformation is it's not just one transformation. You're being actually asked to do two things at the same time. You need to digitize your back end. You have to have a great operational backbone. You need to be thinking about simplifying your processes, automating them, creating components and reusing them. But at the same time, you have to have innovation. And that innovation has to be for customer offers, engaging your customers. That was Stephanie Werner, director and a research scientist at MIT's Center for Information Systems Research, or CISR, at the MIT Sloan School of Management. She's also the co-author with Peter Weil of What's Your Digital Business Model? And with Peter Weil and Ina Sebastian, Future Ready, The Four Pathways to Capturing Digital Value. Stephanie studies how companies use technology and data to create more effective business models, but also how they manage the associated organizational change, governance, and strategy implications. She has a passion for measuring hard-to-assess digital factors and linking them to firm performance, and, as heard in the highlighted clip, helps strategists through the challenges digital transformation brings. In the days after conducting this interview, I shared Stephanie's core framework with at least three strategy and transformation officers. The model immediately resonated with them. They had this moment of, ah, now I see, and I could explain what we're doing. In this episode, we discuss what digital transformation is exactly and the characteristics future-ready companies adopt to enable it. The four pathways to digital transformation and which pathway to pursue based on the stage your company is in, what companies who succeed in digital transformation focus on, and what you can learn from them. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephanie Warner. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really delighted to be here. Us too. So I want to start off with the same question I ask all of our guests, which is to get us to know you a little bit personally. Could you complete this sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. I love to bake and I make a great biscotti. Wow. I love to cook, but baking is another level of complexity. There's too much science in it. Why is it baking for you? Okay. One is I have kids and a husband who are so enthusiastic that I get smiles whenever I get something out of the oven. And I think it's that science that really does it for me. It's this combination of science, but at the same time, it's tactile and there's smell involved with it. So it's not just my head, but there's my hands involved too. I can see that. Maybe one day I will graduate to baking. The next question I also ask all of our guests, always get a different answer, even though we have strategy experts from all kinds of domains answering this question. What is your definition of strategy? So my definition of strategy is around, it's a long-term plan to achieve a specific goal. I really think about strategy in terms of business models. How do companies make money? And so that's really my whole lens around thinking about strategy is what's your business model? How are you going to make money? And then what are all of the behavior actions and structures that you have to put into place to let you achieve that business model? Got it. 
And you focus particularly on digital business models and the evolution of or introduction of or transformation towards digital business models. In this current research, yes, we focus on digital business models. We did do some research back in the early 2000s on regular business models, and I'm very proud of the methodology that we came up with. It was really innovative, and we looked at segment data from 10Ks, and we coded oodles and oodles and oodles of companies. I think we eventually got into machine learning in terms of the coding. But now what we're doing is digital business models and really looking at the digital economy and what are the four ways that companies need to organize themselves to make money in the digital economy. Okay. Yeah, I want to get into those four ways. But before we do that, can you tell us why are you focusing on digital business models? Why are digital business models important now? And maybe 10 years ago, they weren't as such. Actually, we started that research 10 years ago. And what caused us to start that research was talking to our sponsors and other large companies, and they were all talking about digital disruption. They were trying to figure out what to do with digital disruption. So we, very open-ended, went and started convening groups of CIOs and other senior executives and asking them, what's your most important IT-enabled business transformation project? And not knowing exactly where it was going to take us, but what we found after we collected 144 of these, and we started looking for commonalities, and we found that companies were trying to do two things. They were trying to learn about their end customer better, and at the same time, they were also grappling with how to move from a value chain to an ecosystem. Because looked like industry boundaries were going to become more porous or company boundaries were going to become more porous. And so that was really the genesis of the digital business models was companies talking to us about digital disruption and how they were supposed to make sense of it, deal with it, and then taking what they were doing, actually doing, and then synthesizing a framework out of that. I can think of an answer for this, but you've spent much more time studying it, is why does digital enable us or require us to now deliver more frequently within an ecosystem? Well, there are a couple of reasons. I'll touch on some of the big ones that we found. One is almost no company can do it all. And so if you're going to create new ways of engaging with your customers, going to create offers, it's the rare company that actually can bring all of those pieces together. It also turns out that in customers, as you get to know them better, you start to know not just who they are and what they buy from you, but the really great companies know why they want to work with you and what their motivation is. And as soon as you do that, you start to realize, oh, we need to think about an offering rather than just a single product or a single service. And so you have this real pressure to bring in partners. You have this real pressure to bring in the customer voice and digital enables all of that. I got you. I guess it reduces the friction cost or that transaction cost that maybe made partnering too complicated. What we're finding is that companies, they've always partnered. There's been joint ventures. There's been oh, many different ways. But what we're looking for are ways of more seamless partnering. And, you know, APIs make partnering much simpler 
but it means that you have to reorganize what you're able to do, what your core capability is that you've actually API enabled. So that's why I think that partnering has become more important. I think that companies partner for things that they might not have in the past because it's so much simpler. And they can bring in a whole bigger number of partners too. Right. And manage a bigger number of partners. My mind is buzzing a little bit now thinking about what the implications are because, you know, you talk about there needs to be a shift in mindset. Therefore, also like what business are we in? Who do we serve? What does it mean to compete? What are our metrics? All of these, a lot of organizational implications. What have you found to be the big ones that companies who succeed focus on? This has changed over time too. So I think that companies, especially large companies, are much more amenable now to thinking about becoming what we call a modular producer, about taking and creating a service based on what they're really great at and API enabling it and opening it up to the outside world for innovation and not having to control it all. I think when we first started this research, we would talk about companies who owned the platform and actually not just owned it, but, you know, took a piece of every transaction that went across, you know, an ecosystem driver. And man, every big company wanted to be one of those. And we kept saying, but you know, that's really hard. There are other ways to make money. And what we're seeing now is some of those big companies are going, yeah, we can make more money as a modular producer. Or if we have a great omni-channel platform, that's good. And I think that that's one of the big things we've seen over the past 10 years is companies moving away from feeling like they need to control it all and realizing that there are opportunities out there that they have not really taken seriously. Yes, yes, I can see that. That's part of what a lot of people call digital business transformation. And I know that your latest book, Future Ready, provides a really helpful playbook for that. But first, can you start off with what is a digital business transformation? When we think about a digital business transformation, I think of the book that we did the first one as being how you're going to make money. What's the digital business model? But then what you have to do is become what we call future ready. Each of those digital business models are future ready. It's just different sorts of ways of making money. The real concept of a digital business transformation is it's not just one transformation. You're being actually asked to do two things at the same time. You need to digitize your back end. You have to have a great operational backbone. You need to be thinking about simplifying your processes, automating them, creating components and reusing them. But at the same time, you have to have innovation. And that innovation has to be for customer offers, engaging your customers. And so the reason it's so difficult to become future ready is you need to be ambidextrous, pulling out costs on one hand and then innovating on the other. And I think that that was the big aha for us was that we talked about transformations in the past, but as soon as we realized it wasn't just one thing, you actually had to do both. That really crystallized why this was so difficult and then got us thinking about, well, then how do you get to future ready and where are most companies now? So I might not be understanding this correctly, but I'm imagining that your prior book and work was what the end state could be. And there are four end states or something like that. I'd love to know what those four are. And then the second book are pathways to get there. That's exactly right. You have to lay out the framework of what future ready is. And so what we find is that most companies are in a state we call silos and spaghetti. And usually when I say that in front of executives, they all kind of you know shake their head. And it's because big companies, they're complicated. 
They started off selling products. They built a technology stack. And then they said, ah, we've got to share data. We have to go between the two, you know, or three or four different kinds of products. And then before you know it, you've got silos and you have spaghetti between all of those. And the issue there is which way are you going to go and move to get to future ready? If you think of future ready as being the top right quadrant and silos and spaghetti being the bottom left quadrant. Sorry to interrupt you, but just so people could visualize this. On the x-axis, we have operational efficiency. On the left, there's traditional ways of improving operational efficiency and the right transformed. Yes, they're traditional transformed. And then on the y-axis, you have customer experience. Again, traditional and transformed. We've identified four ways that you can get to future ready. One is moving toward transformed, and we call moving into that quadrant, the lower right-hand quadrant, is being industrialized. A lot of manufacturing companies, this is sort of the way that they think about the world, that they have a platform, they make the platform better, they create really standard processes that they use again and again. And those are companies that have service-enabled their core capabilities, they've integrated their customer data. What they may not have done is they may not have figured out how to really engage the customer. And so we see Pathway 1 as being very slow in the beginning, what we call the digitization desert, and then moving up toward rapid innovation once you've got everything in place. It's attractive because of the performance enhancements, but it can actually be very challenging in the beginning because most people in the company don't see any growth, you know, nothing for the customer. Because they're focusing that transformation on the operational efficiency first, and then they start seeing these customer experience benefits that then accelerate. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So that's one path. And pathway two, typically companies that are on a pathway two, can you tell that we're not marketers with pathway one, pathway two? Pathway two is about lighting your customers first. We see companies that follow this pathway, often they do so because there's a competitive threat. And that threat could be startups coming in or other people, other companies that are in the same industry coming in and starting to take market share away. And so on that pathway, companies say, what we're going to do is we're going to create a customer experience. And because we have to do it fast, it's going to be simulated. We're going to put a wrapper around all of those silos, and you're going to see our NPS go up. Really, the key to this pathway is actually having a traffic cop that measures the cost to serve, because eventually what you have to do is integrate all of that customer experience into your platform and create one digital platform. So that's a pathway too. What would be an example of a company we would think of that did that? Lots of retail companies follow this pathway. The most unusual company that we've come across is Semex. I mean, they're global building materials and customer experience and cement. They're just not the two things you'd think of. But when their new CEO, Fernando Gonzalez, when he came in in about 2016, he looked at the fragmentation and the customer experience of the job site manager. And he said, you know what? We have a real opportunity here to build a digital platform that can be multi-device, really thinking initially as being omni-channel. 
you know, you can keep it in your pocket. You can run the job site from your phone or you can have it with your laptop. And that was a really informative way of thinking about customer experience for us. Now, after they achieved about 90% adoption within about somewhere between 12 and 18 months of bringing out their platform called Semex Go. And at that point, they then had the traffic cop, Fernando Gonzalez said, okay, now we integrate. And they were disciplined enough to stop and to integrate. And now Semex Go is their platform. All right, so that's the second pathway. And then the third is stair steps. This is one when we talk about it, almost all companies, they understand this. I think that pathways one and two feel like, oh my God, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. This is one where, especially if you can think about a roadmap moving forward, you have, say, three to six months types of customer experience implementation, and then you can integrate it into the platform and maybe do some simplifications. And you just toggle back and forth. As I said, most companies, that feels safer to them because the others, too, feel like, oh, my God, am I really going to spend lots of time on one or the other? Issue with that one is three big issues. The first is that you have to be very good at governance because you're going to be changing your focus from place to place. Second is you have to be good at road mapping so that your employees know where the heck you're going. And then the third is you need to be good at synchronizing so that you get the learnings from one step to the next step. Because you've got customer experience and then you're going to have a piece in between where you're looking at operational efficiency and then you go to customer experience, you really don't want the steps fragment. But it's probably the most common pathway. And if I did not allow companies to say that they were on multiple pathways, it would absolutely, that's the way that companies naturally think. Got it. Is the one pathway better than another in certain circumstances? Or how do you think of a company saying which pathway they should commit to? So I think of a couple of things. One is you really shouldn't have more than one pathway per business unit. So a large company could have multiple pathways. But if you have two pathways in a business unit, you've set yourself up for fights. The second is you really need to look at your culture and the way that you've done things and who's going to lead it. So for instance, if you really feel like operational efficiency is the way to go and you've got a great CIO, pathway one might be the way to go. Pathway two, like I said, if you've got like a dynamic CMO who really understands digital and you have some competitive threat, that might be the way that you want to go. Pathway three, maybe your COO might be someone who has an eye on both sides and can kind of keep track of things. Pathway four, which we haven't talked about, pathway four is the one where you throw your hands up and say, I can't build a future-ready organization on what I have now. So what I need to do is build a new unit. And you also have units where some companies say, we have a great idea. And so we're going to just start a greenfield new business unit. That one, you might have a chief innovation officer if they have enough power within the organization. I mean, there are problems with the path four that you want to think of as you're on the journey. One is, what's the goal? I mean, is the goal to have a new business unit? Is the goal to learn from and eventually bring the two units back together? Is the goal to spin it out? You really want to have an idea of that before you go. I see. And I think there was one example that I heard you talk about, which is a Colombian bank. That sounds like that's what they did. They'd create a different business unit and then... Yeah, La Colombia had this idea that they could build a digital bank and they initially built it for an underserved banking population. 
they thought this was a real opportunity for them to learn. As you know, financial services are very heavily regulated, and sometimes it's hard to do experiments because of the regulation. And so Bank Colombia saw this new business unit, this new digital bank called NECI, as their place to try out, say, agile methods of working, as a place to try out an API layer and building a marketplace. They had this long-term strategy of building out ecosystems or what I call domains around customer needs. So they started in Neki, but what they were really good at, which some companies don't do, is As soon as it worked and they could bring it back to the mothership, they would bring it back in. And so they got lucky with COVID because the country needed a way to disperse payments. And so they used the digital bank. And one of the other things that had happened was that a lot of people, because they couldn't go out during COVID, actually adopted Neki. And so eventually they decided that they would transition all of the customers who were not the underserved back to the Bank Columbia because they had all the learnings encoded into the app or into the platform for Bank Columbia. And then they made Neki its own separate business unit with a very specific mission. Some banks, you hear of them developing a digital bank, but they haven't really been clear about what they're going to do once it's built. And if you're not careful, you can end up with two platforms instead of one. Yeah. My gosh, I have 10 more questions. We only have maybe a little more time with you. So I'll limit it to just one more question, if you don't mind, which is, it seems like these types of pathways to transformation can involve a big cultural change. How do you think about that? Must it require a major cultural change? Oh, it will have a major cultural change. And we talk about four explosions, and the four explosions are around allocating decision rights, around implementing new ways of working, around developing a platform mindset, and around reorganization or performing organizational surgery. And we think those new ways of working are really what are needed to get a cultural change. I like to think of culture as being a set of ingrained habits, that it's the way that you think about the world. And without having to expend a lot of cognitive capacities, just the way that you do business. And if you can change the way that you work, you can then start to have a real culture change. So as you bring the customer voice in, that starts to change the way that you think about your culture. As you use more data and become more evidence-based, that's going to help change the culture. And all of those things are going to help you get to a more digital culture. This idea of iterating and testing and learning are very digital-centric. So yes, I think that with every transformation we've looked at, there have been a culture change, and it is, I think, very much driven by these new ways of working. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Again, there's so much more that we can learn from you. There are opportunities for our listeners to do so, certainly getting your two books, your numerous articles on MIT Sloan, on Harvard Business Review, going to the Scissor website, reading your research, getting involved there. Anything else that you would recommend a listener do to continue learning from you? I think that the MIT Scissor website, scissor.mit.edu. C-I-S-R. E-I-S-R stands for Center for Information Systems Research. We've been around since 1974. And we have three-page research briefings. We have little video clips. We have case studies of companies that have undergone transformation. And essentially, they're available to the public. 
we really take seriously being affiliated with MIT and an educational mission. That's great. Well, thank you for doing that and for sharing it so openly with us and for taking some time to unpack part of it with us here. Thank you so much for being here, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Nest, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers. <laughs>